Okay, Hazy and T in the building. I only touch greatest podcasts. You see it. We got Mark Emery, weed activist, the Prince of Pot, coming up right now. If you like what we're doing, hit the subscribe button. If you're looking for a mug, perhaps a hoodie, head on over to IOnlyTouchGreatness.com. Hi, I'm Mark Emery, the Prince of Pot, and I'm coming up on the I Only Touch Greatness podcast. And I'm looking forward to hearing what you think. (laughs) Ryan Hayes and Big Mike. I Only Touch Greatness podcast. Air on this part, is there anything you want to cut out or just want to... No, 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 great. Hey, Mark, how are you? Good, how are you doing? I'm fine. I'm Ryan, by the way. Thanks for taking the time. (laughs) Yeah, Ryan, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. And uh, I'm going to smoke during this interview, so you feel free to, obviously. Oh, good. I'll see if Jody wants to roll a joint for me. Yeah, I've actually smoked with her before one time down there at Amsterdam Cafe back in the day. Is that right? Yeah. He said he, he said he smoked with you long ago. Yeah, maybe about 12 years ago, maybe. 12 years ago. Oh, boy. Yeah. Back, back in the ex- exile days. Looking, yeah, looking back forward when to it was, yeah, back when it was frowned upon. But back when pot was way more fun, too. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's all it's money to- now. It's all money in corporate. Yeah, that's for sure. Turning up the volume a little bit there. All right. So how's your day going? Uh, good. Uneventful. Um, often no news is good news in the world today. So, uh, but actually that's not true. I'm going out east soon, so I'm trying to enjoy as much of BC as I can. Um, it's lovely out here for a couple of reasons. The weather's nice in British Columbia, but it also it's not locked down like Ontario is. Um, that drove me crazy. I did 70 days of isolation oh. back from March 11 to May 7th. And then I said, fuck this, right? I'm like, I'm going out like once a week for groceries, not doing anything. Parks are all closed. P- police are giving you the evil eye if you even walk outside. Oh, yeah. So I, I gave up my apartment and just kind of vagabonded with friends. And I, I went to Columbia to, to live uh, with my girlfriend there for three months and her children and grandmother. And it took me six and a half months, six canceled flights, two rejected boardings for covid certificates and stuff like that but i eventually got to columbia on november 4th when i started to try and get there back in march (laughs) so yeah but airlines are so screwed up by the canadian government and uh, their hysterical response to covid so um but it was great now i'm back i've got to work got no money so um i'll be going to ontario the belly of the beast as it were um for uh to start working in the legal cannabis industry which i need to do because unfortunately, you know, I, I've done my jail time. I can't get arrested anymore. It's, you know, it's just, there's no particular reason. And I'm such a heat score if I do something illegally. You know, no landlord can rent to me now. Because uh, as soon as they see me, they're going to go, what are you doing? And I had never lied. I never lied to landlords. So I would have to say I'm selling weed. And they're going to go, I, I, sorry, guy, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Unless you've got permits and a license. So that's where we're at in this day and age now. In fairness, I did fight to bring a legal environment to Canada, so it's appropriate that I get involved with that industry and uh, see what it's like, see what can be done, see if I can earn a living, and see if we can make it better. So are you in Vancouver then? Because I'm in Coquitlam. 
Yeah, I'm right. I'm in North Van. Oh, okay. Okay, perfect. So yeah. born and raised in Ontario, then what was life like growing up? Well, Ontario is hoser country, right? I mean, you, you look at people from Ontario, Windsor and Sudbury and Sarnia, and I, I'm from a little less industrial town, London, Ontario. But here's the great thing. I'll be working at my brother's shop in London, Ontario called Emery Brothers Cannabis. And uh, it's only one kilometer for where both my brother and I were born and raised and two kilometers from the police station where I first started standing outside in 1991, handing out copies of High Times, which were illegal. So it's coming full circle. I started that. I did that in front of the London police station in April 1991. So it'll be like 30 years ago next month when I'm back. Totally. Yeah, I got that in my notes farther on. Um, I read also somewhere that at age nine, you started your first business selling stamps. Yes, yes stamp treasure. Um, back in those days, you would buy stamps through the mail. People would send booklets of stamps to you. You'd take out what you want. You'd send the booklet back and you'd send the money in an envelope inside it. It relied totally on trust. Um, so that's my first important lesson was um, is that I went pretty well bankrupt in that one when somebody didn't return all the stamps. Like the idea is you send them stamps, they pick the ones they want. I, used to, I was starting to accumulate valuable stamps through a variety of ways um, because I discovered the value of money younger than most kids, right? That's why I got into vintage comic books next at age 11, which I become incredibly successful at. And by the time I'm 14, I'm making more than my dad is working at 3M, the factory he worked at all his life uh, by selling these old vintage comic books. But first, I started selling stamps and at age nine till I was 11. And then one day, a guy didn't send me my stamps back. And that kind of wiped me out. Somebody's act of distrust. So then I had to figure out, OK, I can't have a business model where I rely on others uh, trustworthiness because I know I'm trustworthy and I'm trying to develop a business reputation of trustworthiness. So I've got to make it that they give me the money first and I'll send them the goods after I get the money. And that's what I, that's the model I did starting at age 11 with Mark's comic room started on uh, January 1st, 1971. So that was over 50 years ago, back in January, yeah. I started my first really successful business. And then you, Owned a comic book store, right? Of course. Uh, how long no, did you own no, the no. store for? Okay, that was, that was January 1st to March 15th, 1975. I had it for just over four years. You know, I handled Spider-Man number one in Amazing Fantasy 15, the first appearance of Spider-Man, uh, eight times in that time. And I remember selling it for about $300 for each one. Now the thing is like, like $25,000 or something, right? All those X-Men number one, which I sold a lot of that. The hardest comic to get in my day, the old vintage ones, was Hulk. Hulk number one to six, the original 1962 to 63 uh, issues. They're incredibly hard to find. Um, when did you move out west? Uh, well, that, that was done via Asia. I, uh, every now and then, I periodically get discouraged with my country and I need to take off. Um, and the first time I really needed to do that was in 1992. I went to live in Asia with my kids for a couple of years and my uh, female partner at the time. And that was an awesome experience going through Asia, man. Uh, that was the most valuable thing I may have ever done in my life is to force myself to go and do and see things that are difficult, arduous and on a low budget. And uh, that was really awesome. And then, but I went broke. <laughs> I lost all my money. 
uh, building a house in the rainforest of uh, Sumatra, Indonesia. Um, it was a crazy idea. I don't know what I was thinking. I was a little like that guy from the Mosquito Coast, eventually sort of going a little crazy in the mountain regions of the netherworlds um, at the equator. Lovely place. But um, I lost all my available money uh, building a, a big house there. And so I had to come back. And I, I didn't want to come back to London, Ontario and have to be humiliated by admitting failure. So I went to Vancouver and arrived there on uh, March 1st, uh, 1994. And I started, uh, immediately got some illegal banned High Times magazine and Grow Your Own Stone and whatever I could find that people would front me. And I went and sold them on the street uh, for two or three months. And remarkably, uh, you know, desperation will make you very ambitious. And I would sell, sell, sell. And eventually I started selling enough to kind of make enough to pay for daily living, um, selling illegal banned high times magazines, grow books and anything to do with marijuana was illegal. So there was a big pent up market for it. I'd sell it at bus stops. I went down to the universities to sell to students. And then I started wholesaling. Like I would go into variety stores and say, listen, high times is illegal. It hasn't been available, but you'll sell it really fast. Would you like to buy copies from me? And I, I raised the cover price a dollar so I could let those people have uh, 35% markup. And eventually I was in dozens of stores with High Times Magazine and Grow Your Own Zone. And eventually my own new newsletter called the Marijuana and Hemp Newsletter, which became a cannabis culture yep. magazine eventually. Yeah, I got that coming up later. Uh, well, okay, while we're on that topic then, you also ended up on the front of uh, the Globe and Mail or uh, the no, uh, well, New York Times. No, but you're close. I have been in New York Times, but I was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Oh, yeah, that's what I was. On, on December 10th, 1995, and the headline was Pot Seed Merchant. This is what killed me. Pot Seed Merchant winked at by police prosperous in Canada. And it's a wonderful article, actually. It was very accurate, but uh, a, a ton of hurt came down three weeks later because I could be in all the Canadian newspapers I wanted and nothing bad ever happened. But whenever I appeared on Rolling Stone magazine or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal uh, or High Times magazine, I got raided each time uh, because important people would call and say, listen, this guy is boasting that he is selling hundreds of thousands of seeds to Americans from Canada. And he's doing it with the implication that he's immune, that somehow he can't be hurt. And in fact, I would be raided in Canada many times, but they didn't hurt me. They took all my inventory, which, believe me, is really hurtful, because the first two raids, they took about a quarter million dollars worth of stuff. It's hard to recover from that. You don't get insurance for, for seeds or weed when they're taken by police. But um, it, and it took me the first raid was on January 4th, 1996. They took about a quarter million dollars worth of material. And it took me eight months to recover, like to just get to where I was. But that's a nice milestone. And as soon as I recovered, I moved across the street and set up a, a marijuana paraphernalia superstore, which yeah. is where cannabis culture is right now at 307 West Hastings. And then we get raided on December 16th in the evening of 1997, pretty well two years after the first raid. And they take quarter million dollars again. And by then, I, had I was employing 45 people. We had the Cannabis Cafe, Hemp BC, Mark Emery Seeds Direct. Um, Pot TV didn't start. That was the first video broadcast service ever done on the internet. Uh, I got our, first, our first video broadcast was April 26th, 
2000, but we started out building it on January 1st, 2000 as my millennial pro millennium product. Uh, probably something, probably that's the most revolutionary thing I ever did along with selling seeds. Uh, seeds took more risk, but pot TV lost money, probably lost a million dollars to a million and a half dollars in the first six years. Um, because data bandwidth was so expensive. The more successful we got, the more it cost me in bandwidth charges. And we were like paying scandalous amounts on a monthly basis, like uh, $10,000, $20,000 to pay for bandwidth that you would pay you know, $1.50 for now yeah. because flash media and bandwidth prices have come down categorically. Um, that's why the technology existed. But the reason nobody ever came up with a video before Pot TV, and this is what I found out, that even though I could produce it and we could send it out, there was no fiber optics available to carry that signal in real time in such a way that people could see it. But eventually they started. Over the next year, the whole North American, uh, all of North America has fiber optics. It's installed incredibly quickly to meet the oh. digital era. And uh, remember, it was dial-up, but dial-up didn't work. Yeah. You had to have a modem. Yep. You had to have really good. And eventually that happened. So by 2002, we're paying like $30,000 a month for bandwidth because we're getting more successful. USA Today wrote good things about pot TV because it was the only thing of its kind um, because you needed someone who was going to give a lot of money to something that, wasn't, that was going to lose money. And that was the seed business. So the seed business would... Eventually, it, we gave away $5 million to things in 10 years that weren't belonging to me. Plus, we underwrote Pot TV for a million dollars because that's what it lost in that time. So, you know, we're, we're subsidizing everything. Now, the thing I guess I'm really proudest of is the Colorado Medical Marijuana Initiative in 2000 because I paid for the majority of that. $45,000 um, went to that. And that was to get the signatures to put it on the ballot. Um, and because, and then I did Arizona and Washington, D.C. in 98, Arizona in 2002. Uh, I tried, I financed a lot of Alaska in 2002, four and six, um, rather, sorry, 2000, 2002 and four. And, you know, we were, we were trying to sponsor whatever we could do with any ballot initiative in any jurisdiction because it was like a great fun way to subvert the U.S. democratic system in favor of the pot people. They would send me money for seeds. I would send the seeds. They would grow tons of weed that's still being grown today um, from those seeds. And then with that money, I would uh, try and make marijuana legal through ballot initiatives, rallies. I would support various organizations. Back in the old yeah. days, it was called the Linda Smith Institute. It's George Soros's thing now. It was then, actually. Um, uh, you know, but we're going back 25 years here when I first started doing all that. So, um, what did yeah, the, so that's what did the city of Vancouver think when you arrived on the scene then in '94? Well, Philip Owen, the mayor, was apoplectic. Now, actually, after all this happened, years later, we became friends, which is kind of funny because when the New York Times wrote a big piece on me, causing all my subversion, sending all these seeds around the world, sending them to America, sending them to Canada, selling them overtly leading rallies, demonstrations, uh, you know, causing shit in Vancouver, starting 420, starting Cannabis Day. Like suddenly within two years, there was a revolution going on in Canada and Vancouver especially. And the very conservative mayor, Philip Holland, he was just thunderstruck and really upset. Like he wouldn't look at me. He wouldn't talk to me. He, would, he told the New York Times, by the end of this year, Emory is going to be toast. He actually used that word, toast. Yeah, I read that. And, uh, 
and they did. They eventually, they chased me right out of the city and everybody involved with Cannabis Culture Magazine is chased out of the city. And we do like what Kai, Chiang, Chiang Kai-shek did when he got kicked out of communist China. When the communists won, he went to Taiwan and set up shop there. Well, that's what we had to do on the Sunshine Coast um, where we were fairly anonymous, didn't cause trouble. But as it turns out, in three years on the Sunshine Coast, I, I advanced the seed business and the cannabis culture magazine and pot TV tremendously outside of police scrutiny. So that turns out that Philip Owen and the police did me a favor because I needed three years of reprieve because I'd just been raided four times, arrested eight times in the space of two years in Vancouver. Yeah. So, um, so Philip Owen, like, got rid of me and he was happy and we, we didn't have a store anymore. And for uh, two or three years, there was nothing going on in Vancouver except for 20 and cannabis day. But I was very content to do that. And then we come back in the election, the BC election of 2001. And we end up having 79 candidates for the BC marijuana party, which cost me about $160,000 paid for by seeds. Now you can't have illegal crime profits, finance an entire campaign and election. So I had to get 160000 and give it to myself and declare that as taxable income, which caused me a shitload of problems later. And then I give it to all the, to the campaign because in British Columbia, you can give unlimited amounts. So I, I, to this day, I'm the largest contributor to any provincial election campaign. I gave $160,000 to the BC Marijuana Party in the, ninth, in the 2001 campaign. We had a candidate in every riding, all 79 ridings. And when we did that, I said, wouldn't it be great if we came back and set up shop in the exact same location that we got kicked out of because it was available? My old landlord said, Mark, it's available. Do you want it? And I, we came back and we came back as the BC Marijuana Party bookshop. And what we did is we sold the exact same things again, seeds, bongs pipes except theoretically it was owned by the political party which you can do and is in a large degree protected so we never did get raided there for all the activity we did but here's the thing so you know i'm an arrogant guy very few people would dispute that a likable but arrogant guy so what happened is i couldn't believe it that the mayor once we come back the mayor philippone seems to be a changed man suddenly he's been educated by Ethan Nadelman and the Linda Smith Institute and all those George Soros people. And now he's in favor of legalization and some bizarre change of fate. And this is something that's going to happen to me throughout my life, is that all the people who persecuted me, to some degree, will come around and advocate for legalization. Never enough to benefit me in any real way. But nonetheless, it becomes an interesting thing to observe in the next 20 yeah. years. So Philip Owen starts saying, well, maybe we should think of ways to legalize and have a safe injection site. And he's acting really strange. And he never brings me up again. And he doesn't have me raided. Um, Okay, so this is great. Um, In 2002, I run for mayor of uh, of Vancouver because he's not going to run again. A guy named Larry Campbell wins under the guise of being in favor of legalization. But beware of such people because he did sweet fuck all, really. Um, and he's now in the Senate profiting by a reputation he never earned. But anyway, okay, so in 2002, um, I start doing all, you know, I run for mayor. I'm financing rallies all around the world. And by now, I've established with uh, Dana Beal uh, the global marijuana marches around the world. And I'm financing all of those. And they're costing like 40, 50 grand a year minimum 
to finance posters and information and networking for the global marijuana. So now we've established 420s in Vancouver and they're spreading. Ours was the first one in the world. Now they're spreading all over. Cannabis Day spread all over Canada. Yeah. Everybody had a cannabis day at the legislature. Now we've got uh, Pot TV streaming shows regularly, a unique uh, one of a kind. And we've got Cannabis Culture Magazine uh, all over the world. I'm in my heyday. I'm, I'm, say, yeah, I'm, sell, I'm selling more seeds. The seed sales peaked in 2002. And in November 2002, the drug czar of the United States, John Walters, comes to Vancouver to give a speech to try and stop it all. Stop me. Stop legalization. Stop Larry Campbell. Stop Philip Owen. Just stop your legalization shit. Vancouver was the theme. And I found out about it. And it was like $500 for a table for 10 people. So uh, the newspapers leaked it to me. Uh, the London, the Vancouver Chamber of Commerce was more than happy to sell me a table of five for $500. And we ruthlessly heckled John Walters all night until he had a meltdown. He got red in the face and he swore he would get me. And sure enough, three days later, an investigation of me starts and that eventually, get this, involves 31 departments of the United States and Canada, including DEA, FBI, Homeland Security, Immigration, ICE, RCMP, um, British Columbia Police. It's just like enormous. My phone is now surveilled and monitored for the next three and a half years, um, longer really. Uh, it's I, I, I'm my phone is monitored right up to the time I get exiled in 2010. I, I saw that the the lady's name was Karen too, out of all people that. Uh, yes, Karen. Her yeah, email was Karen be, from Washington be, because be they had to they had to prove that they I knew they were American, so her email would be Karen from Washington. When she called me, it said karen from washington right so i could never say i wasn't aware they were americans yeah. and therefore i was helping in a conspiracy for them to grow weed now eventually i do know she's dea a week before i get raided she comes to try and buy seeds from me in person i keep telling her i said i'll be glad to sell you seeds but then she says listen i also need to get 10 pounds of cannabis can you sell me 10 pounds and i keep telling her i told her this on the phone in her email and in person the same thing and eventually i say listen you're terrible at this you can't go around asking people for 10 pounds and expecting that you're going to be able to successfully smuggle them back to the united states makes no sense at all i don't sell pot i'm not going to sell you pot and i recommend you do not ask anymore because if i didn't know better i'd say you were a narc yeah. and at that point according to my freedom of information request we got later they immediately panicked and moved up my arrest my arrest was going to be in two or three months um, they were really determined to get me to sell them weed because they were unsure that they would get away with uh, arresting me for seeds and extraditing me. That had never been done before. And it seemed very dodgy to them because seeds themselves don't contain any drug value. But it would be clear I was involved in conspiracy to grow pot, but it wouldn't have a lot of public sympathy to try and extradite a guy. for Anyway, um, once I said, if I didn't know better, I'd think you were a narc. They had me arrested the next weekend, and along with everybody else in my organization. Oddly enough, they never found any of those seeds, though. So they didn't have any real evidence to prove that I had those seeds, and that'll also be a problem for them later on. Um, but in any case, as we know, I did five years on that, but it started out at 28 to 40, came down to 10. They wanted to give me 10 for me and two for my partners, and eventually I held out for five, and my partners got to plead not guilty, not go to jail, which made me feel good 
because I thought no matter what happens to me, I didn't drag anybody down because of my grandiose visions, right? It's bad enough that Jody would have to go through five years of visiting me in prisons and dealing without me and the hardships of coping when we can't sell seeds. And unfortunately, I did do one smart thing. I closed down Cannabis Culture's printed version because it was losing small amounts of money. Not that we could sustain it. But if Jody was going to have to do a magazine, deal with losses, deal with all the other things, it would be impossible. So we wrapped that up just before I went to prison. And of course, magazines haven't made money for 10, 15 yeah, years now. None of them online. make money. Yeah, they're online. And people don't even know how to, people don't even know how to read a magazine. I find it difficult to have that kind of attention span. Whereas the phone, fuck, I'll look at my phone for four hours and I won't complain. But if I open a magazine, and I know that I love magazines, for one. I've been a publisher and editor. I love cannabis, and I am hard-pressed to spend one hour looking through a magazine. So I know they're dead because I won't read them, and they don't sell. I've looked at the numbers. They're all terrible. No advertisers really getting their money's worth when they buy an ad in a magazine. So we're going through some strange times as a culture and as a worldwide culture, but also as, as a cannabis culture. Because you know what? I, there were at one time a ton of magazines, Dope, uh, Mary Jane, uh, High Times, and I don't see any of them anywhere anymore. Not on newsstands, not anywhere. So I don't know where they're being sold. And I don't well, know where they're being sold. in Safeway. Yeah, that's that. Well, what's, what's, the, ra magazine what's the rage you know? nowadays, though? are not news magazines, but Time and Newsweek put out a ton of magazines about people like the Beatles or John Lennon or Bob Dylan. This is what Rolling Stone is doing too. Or uh, Einstein or, or, or the American Revolution or World War II. They put out these like annuals or these special editions charged, you know, $11.95 US, $14.95 Canadian. And people will buy those because it's a whole issue about a subject that possibly interests them right so i see these all the time i saw one yesterday cbd magazine right it comes out every two months and it's all paid for by the cbd industry right all those ads i see that or newsweek every year has a new marijuana annual out like cannabis what you should know where it's available where it's legal well the government they didn't want you to do it but now the government's doing well, it. well the problem is the government subsidizes every journalist in Canada now. The government of Canada has a massive program to spend $600 million over five years on journalists. Now, you might think, oh, that's great. That'll guarantee journalism. Uh, no, it guarantees the journalism sucks up to the Liberal Party of Canada who uh, pass that into law, who keep it going. And uh, so every journalist, in a way, is beholden to the government of Canada. So, you know, have you noticed how activism has evaporated, disappeared ever since Canada legalized. Even though it was a terrible legalization, it was highly flawed, it's very problematic. There's virtually no activists, no activism yeah. going on in Canada. There's nothing to do. You, you can't hold a rally to change a regulation. That's the thing, right? Um, not only has COVID eliminated 420s and cannabis days and pretty well all 420 celebrations and just yeah, smoking with strangers like I used to do all the time. I still yeah. do, by the way. Uh, I, by the way, I haven't social. I haven't stopped smoking or sharing joints or anything, right? Like I, I don't mind getting sick. Um, I don't even mind dying. If that's the way it goes, that's the way it goes. I'm not living in fear. Yeah. Uh, certainly not at my age, right? Like yeah. I've had si 63 good years. I've lived a fabulous life, 
as is everybody who's my age. We all went through a period of the greatest prosperity and expansion of economy in human history, right? We've enjoyed the bountiful fruits of all our previous generations in a way no one else can. So if you have to die in your 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, or whatever from COVID, then you get in the box because you had a great life. And this is not a time to be oppressing all the young people in the world with our bullshit because we want to live a few extra months beyond normal. You know, take your lumps, accept that we had live in a risk society, get sick, get better or die, whatever, and uh, stop complaining. Yeah. Um, one question. Let's but but. To, to pursue that one, um, the, the legalization was very flawed, yeah. but there's no way to change it through activism. The only way to really change it is be part of the corporate lobby that has some influence on government because, you know, any change in the regulations is going to be a change that benefits big business and big bureaucracy. Uh, if those two don't benefit, it's not going to happen. They care not a shit for the old legacy people in the industry, the old growers, the people in the business now. They don't give a damn about it. It's All bureaucracy is to serve the procedure of bureaucracy. It's not to get good outcomes. If you could sit down for dinner with anybody dead or alive, who would it be? Wow, that would be awesome. Thomas Jefferson, without question. Uh, certainly the most brilliant man of his times. Plus, I, you know, I'd ask him about those slaves. Was he really boinking a lot of slaves or was it just <laughs> Susan Hemings? Because um, I regard Thomas Jefferson as an extremely honorable person. But slaves were commonplace. George Washington had slaves. Uh, although in his will, apparently he would have freed them, as did my understanding, as was Jefferson's will. Um, Jefferson, the first act Jefferson did as president was stop the importation of all slaves, because as the president, he had that power. So he immediately stopped slavery from coming into the United States. And, but he could not successfully keep the South in the Union if he outlawed slavery. So that was his dilemma. Um, he's a genius, uh, incredibly prolific, uh, a man of astute insight, uh, dozens of books. I mean, the guy just lived an amazing life. So uh, he would be my first one. If I could pick a musician, um, and I've met a lot of famous musicians, so I'm not that curious about musicians. Um, but it would probably be someone from a couple of hundred years ago. Um, Ludwig Beethoven, Bach, these yeah. people spoke German, though, so you, we'd need a Google Translate to have lunch together. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of contemporary film directors I would have loved to have talked to, Sidney Lumet, uh, some famous actors. Uh, I thought, I think it'd be fun to go to, well, well James Stewart, to, to tell me what your life was like. Yeah. Right? Or, you know, that's not actually a very good James Stewart. I used to do a better, you got to shake like you've got Parkinson. Well, well not now, now you, you, you Mr. Whippersnapper, Mark Emery, you know, something like that. I used to do much better impressions. Jeez. That's a that's a practiced art you've got to work on. Have you ever smoked with uh, Tommy Chung? Oh, Tommy's a friend of, yeah. I like to think he's still a friend. He actually blocked me on Twitter because I said something nice about Trump. And Tommy's very Democratic Party left yeah. wing. He's typically woke type of stuff, right? Most pot people are total communist woke types, Tommy, right? I had, I had Tommy on the show a couple of weeks back. So yeah, but he and Jody are good friends. Yeah. Um, they're big fans of each other. Jody adores Tommy. He's always been great to us, including me. He gave me my Lifetime Achievement Award in Amsterdam on behalf of High Times. All the time, 
Yeah, he wore my he wore free mark shirts on TV all the time when I was in prison. He's actually a really wonderful guy who actually um, saw his career. I think just to me, he was. Um, I didn't like the character of Leo on that '70s show. Yeah. I thought it was a terrible character. It probably did a lot of harm to the cannabis cliche stereotype. Um, and in that period of time, I don't think Tommy was that happy. And I wouldn't say he was that successful. Once he went to jail, and he did so for his kids and his wife, he didn't need to go to jail. He had to take the rap for some fucking bongs he had nothing to do with, right? But they had his image on them, and it was Chong bongs, right? And Tommy, in a really honorable way, takes eight months prison so his wife and his child doesn't get charged, right? And then Tommy's life gets so way better after that. He goes to jail. He does absolutely the most he can with that experience. He writes a book after it called the I Chong, E Chong, if you want to look at it that way. It's a great book. Um, he meets the Wolf of Wall Street in jail. And the Wolf of Wall Street's two books are directly a result of Tommy telling him how to write a good book, what's important in writing. And so Tommy is responsible for some great stuff that he won't even get credit for because the two Wolf of Wall Street books are terrific and they sucked up until the time Tommy told him, now this sucks, do this all again and do it this way. Tell about all your over-the-top outrageous stories and all your conflicts, which by the way is also the, 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 the uh, method of a reality show. Reality shows don't really want reality, they want all your conflicts and enemies and arguments and petty disputes and over-the-top disputes and anyone who hates you, that's what they want to show because that's what people do. Because the point of a reality show is to feel superior when you watch it to the people you're watching on TV. You're supposed to think, what pathetic sods they are. Oh, fuck, I'm so much better. than." And then you feel good, right, in a terrible way. It's a schadenfreude of the worst kind, right? But that's a reality show, and that's also like a lot of autobiographies have to be this way. So Tommy comes out of jail, and then he goes on tour. He starts doing uh, a tour with Cheech. His book is out. And he's fucking bigger than ever. And I really love that about Tommy, um, that for the last 15, 16 years, now he's retired now yeah. because he's had cancer, the prostate and surgeries. And, you know, he's what, 82. Um, yeah. He's still awesome. He still comes by to see Jody whenever he can at the store. And uh, he's, he's our greatest spokesperson, really. Yeah. There is no greater stoner pot person in the world uh, more recognized than Tommy Chong, except... There's one. You. Uh, and it's overlaps with the greatest black superstar of all time in all history. The most recognizable black man in the world is not Martin Luther King. So if he were, that would be uh, an appropriate honor. Ricky Williams. But it's Bob. No, it's Bob Marley. Bob Marley is yeah. easily the most recognized black man ever, will ever be, um, more so than Barack Obama. Plus, he's more important to more people than Barack Obama or any other black person. Bob Marley uh, was always for the underclasses. He was always for the poor. He was always for the marginalized. He was always against police brutality. He was the original Rasta that most anybody's ever heard of. Leonard Held is the first Rasta. But, um, but Bob is just the, the patron saint of stoners, the patron saint of blacks, uh, patron saint of Rastas, uh, the patron saint of reggae. Uh, Bob Marley's influence cannot be overestimated. He is simply the greatest black superstar of all time. And he, his legacy is incredible. He had 13 children by eight women. Uh, most of them are musical geniuses, certainly yeah, Stephen are. and Damien. Uh, 
are. I wouldn't say Ziggy's a genius, but he certainly has had many beautiful songs. Yep. Um, and, you know, Rohan's great with Marley Coffee. I mean, they're very talented. That guy had like some incredible genes. What's that? What do you like to listen to when you smoke? Um, well, Jody's got me listening to podcasts lately. Joe Rogan's podcast. I've been, I, I never heard a podcast candidly until about two weeks ago. I think Jody made me listen to one or something. Um, and then I've been hearing more of them and Joe Rogan's a Joe Rogan asks good questions and he has great guests. Right. And when you've got a audience of millions, like he does, he can get the great guests. Wouldn't that be sweet. Eh? If we could all get these incredible people on our podcast. Now, now I see you doing. Did. I got you. I know. I, I see you had Tommy Chong. And that's amazing. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised Tommy will give interviews, right? Because, you know, we don't know how many years Tommy has left um, or what his health is. Like. It's so nice of him to give you an interview. Yeah. Like relative to Tommy, I'm a nobody. Uh, I'm an interesting character and historically relevant for a lot of things. But Tommy's a superstar, yeah. um, you know, uh, in many ways. And yet he's still so kind to people. Uh, to ordinary people, like I consider you an ordinary guy, right? You're not Joe Rogan. I'm not J- Tommy Chong. Uh, and whenever Cherry guy at Canuck games, you interviewed Don Cherry. No, I'm the guy that dresses up as, at the Canuck games as Don Cherry. But oh, I used to have season tickets to the Canucks, right? Oh, yeah, so do I. Um, starting in 2002, loved going to the games. Loved go. That was in that great period with Bertuzzi, Nasland, and Morrison. Yeah. Uh, what did we call that? The West Coast line. Yeah. Um, boy, those were sweet days. And uh, now I was in prison when, yeah, West Coast, I was in prison when we did the 2011, but believe me, I would have been very ashamed at that riot where I was, I actually got tear gassed at the 1994 riot when we had the best time almost winning the Stanley Cup. In fact, we, everybody celebrated that we almost won the Stanley Cup. We didn't even need to win the Stanley Cup. The run to the cup in 94 was so great with Bure and Linden. And I was at the Coliseum to see them win game six which was fucking awesome. Bure scores on a breakaway. Fucking awesome. So we go into game seven. It's in New York. We're all watching it at the Coliseum on, this, on the Jumbotron. We lose, but everybody's feeling awesome because we all were going, hey, what an incredible run, right? Like we, we were one goal away from winning the Stanley Cup. And we go, down, we go downtown, and then the police fuck shit up because it's way too crowded. They freak out. They panic. They wade into the crowd. The crowd, unfortunately, some miscreants, throughout the crowd, go and break windows. And next thing you know, I'm, I live at Butte and Georgia, and I'm being tear gassed in my home. And I'm watching my tear gas on TV. I see the police launching tear gas, and one lands 20 feet in front of the door of my building. <laughs> and like an idiot, I go out to see what's going on. And I've never hurt so much in my life. Nothing the police ever did to me intentionally ever hurt me as much as getting tear gassed in the face during that first 94 cup riot. <laughs> and I had to run in the house with my son and we just ran cold water on our face for 15 minutes. It was so painful. It's, it's a uh, capsicum uh, particulate matter. It's taken from the capsicum plant, like hot peppers yeah. and then ground into a very fine dust, put in an aerosol and that shit hurts. Let me tell you. What do you think? Do you watch the Canucks now? <laughs> I do. I've been really disappointed this yeah, year. Yeah, me though. too. I just don't get it. You know, a streaky teams thwart me. Now I see every Raptors game. I'm much more Raptors fan <laughs> than, and I still, and I have two 420 Canucks uniforms made by the team for me. Yeah. So I'm loyal. The Leafs made me one too. I got a 420 Emory Jersey. It's a gorgeous Toronto Maple Leafs Jersey. And of course the Leafs, I, I watched the Leafs cause I lived in Toronto for four years and I, my original team is the Leafs. I grew up a Leafs fan. 
I became a Canucks fan when I came here in 94. Yeah. And what a great year to become a Canucks fan. And I've yeah, been exactly. for two decades since. But I got to tell you, I'm much more into the Raptors. I'm totally vested in the Raptors. I'm very disappointed the NBA put shit like Black Lives Matter on the court or on uniforms. Keep the fucking politics out of all sports. Uh, Whatever politics. I don't want to hear politics from actors, sports people, or anything. You're just going to cause me to not go to games, right? Even if I agree with you. I don't want to see politics I agree with either. Keep that shit out, right? We shouldn't have to talk. The great thing about sports is you can meet a guy in a bar, talk about the game, and never know his sports or never know his politics. Yeah. <laughs> right? You might bring it up, this COVID shit sucks. But Benley, like if I see a guy, I wanted to, I like talking about the Raptors. I like talking about the Canucks. I like talking about what's going on. I don't need to know your politics. I'd prefer never to know your politics unless that's what we're going to talk about, right? But, yeah. you know, like I don't like, I like, you know, I love Kyle Lowry, our greatest player. Uh, definitely think we should put his jersey in the Raptors, but I don't like seeing Black Lives Matter on uniforms on the court. Stuff like educate or you know neutral, non racially oriented ones, right? Because I don't buy into the fact that Canada is a systemic racist country. It's not. It's one of the most non racist countries you'll ever find. Why do we know this? Because everybody from Africa wants to move here. They don't go to other countries in Africa. Why do we have? tens of thousands of Somalians of all people in Canada because they didn't want to go somewhere in Africa where black people are. They didn't want to go somewhere in Africa or Asia where Islamic people are, which is what they are. They came to white Christian countries, millions of them, because this is freedom. It ain't free in Africa. It's not free in Asia. No Islamic country in the world is free. None of them vote, right? None of them have guaranteed charter rights like Canada, and none of them are going to be uh, uh, give people opportunity. So when the immigrant class comes here and they start bitching about a racist society, man, you are so spoiled and indulged to be allowed to say that because it is not. Do you play any sports growing up? Well, (gasps) hang on a sec. I got to get a glass of water. There's some strong weed here. What's that you're smoking on? I bet that was Island Pink, actually. No, it wasn't. Oh, my, my pot that I'm really liking lately is Miracle Alien Cookies. Um, I've got capsules, shatter, flour, and some really great temple ball hash from it. Oh, sweet. It, Jody just said from the other room that it wasn't the island pink, so I don't know what it was. What was it, Jody? It was LP weed. You don't want to do it. It was crappy LP weed, but... Maybe that's why I coughed, but also it's, you know, I'm going to be working in the legal industry, right? So I have to be fair, you know, this is a difficult challenge for me. Typically the free market weed is you can get it of higher quality. Doesn't mean all free market weed is better than legal weed. It doesn't mean that at all because there's a lot of free market weed that is not better than legal weed. But the thing is, if you want good legal weed, you have to pay that premium price. The mid-range and lower price legal weed, and there's a lot of really good pricing, but the weed's just not worthy, in my opinion. So, you know, if someone were to ask me, I would say buy the more expensive legal weed, uh, the stuff that's clearly like $12, $14 a gram, and you're going to get off. You're going to get high. It's what I would be smoking. And you'll smoke less of it than the mids or the low range which appears to be a better deal for cost, but you're just going to have to smoke more to get high, so it's not a better deal. 
And that's for sure. I'm usually the mid-range kind of guy. Well, you know, in the free market, if you get a regular supplier, you can get weed at 160 to 200 bucks an ounce. It's really good. Yeah. And because the guy needs your business. He's not, once he sells you swag once, you go, huh, that didn't really get me off. I wonder what else I can find. So your local guy has a vested interest. And if he's got just one, two, three, or five strains, he's going to try and sell you something that's good because he needs the repeat business more than the legal shops. Um, The legal shops will want repeat business eventually, but considering every last one of them has the same supply, the Ontario cannabis store in the case of an Ontario shop, he could go to anybody's shop and buy that. They're all going to be similarly priced. Nobody can be much more than the Ontario cannabis store online store uh, in the legal business. So, you know, they're also, you got like nearly a thousand shops in Ontario selling the same weed at the same prices of the same quality. They all look like Apple stores. So when people come to Emory Brothers in London, it's going to look like it's my place. It's going to look like a head shop. It's going to sell seeds. It's going to sell bongs, pipes, grow equipment, tents. You don't have to buy weed from me if you don't want to. You can buy seeds to grow your own weed or whatever you need to do that. Whatever is legally possible under an ACMPR, we're going to help you or your four plant limit or, or if you just want to get good hot smoke, right? 80% of the clients of most cannabis shops in Ontario are getting indica flour. That's, you know, most sales are indica flour. Not many people ask for sativa. Very few people ask for hash or bubble hash, right? Those are elite tastes that are by and large covered well in the black market and will take time to transition to the legal market. But some of my friends have legal businesses now producing bubble hash, uh, like Mark Richardson Bubble Man is involved in a company that's producing hash. Uh, my friend, the Butter King, who's retired from the old uh, legacy industry, has got legal stuff coming out. So in the next two or three years, we're going to see some really nice quality micro-grow weed. We're going to see some great bubble hash, uh, tremendous hashes. It's going to take time. But eventually, everybody's going to transition who's looking at the long term into the legal industry. They have to. There is no no future in the black market or free market because the government can seize your assets, your money, like they did with me. You know, why am I looking to work at a place... You know, in Ontario, 20 bucks an hour, or my brother will pay me more. But, um, but why am I looking to work there? Because I'm broke. I, you know, I, I just, if you've got my criminal record and my reputation for a variety of things, my political reputation, you know, alleged sex scandals, and I've been called transphobic, of course homophobic, racist, sexist, uh, mask, COVID denier, uh, anti-masker. It's all insane. I'm the same person I've been all my life, exactly the same point of view. I oppose the government, but I also have to swim in the same dirty water as everybody else. So yeah, I think the legal regime sucks, but I've got to work there because I've got to earn a living. I've got you know people who are counting on me, uh, family in, in Medellin, Colombia. I've got obligations here i got back taxes to pay and a fine i still got to finish paying you know i'm not in a position to just diddle around and wait for the perfect job i got to get to work like every other responsible adult human who's got obligations do you think that the government regrets waiting so long to legalize it now that they see how much money they're making first of all government never regrets anything you know when you say does the government regret The government doesn't regret any bad war where they killed tens of thousands of people. The government doesn't regret policies that put hundreds of thousands out of work. They're not going to regret anything they did. Everything they did regarding COVID was wrong. 
Yeah. Locking down the economy, terrible, disastrous decision we'll be playing for for years. Bla holding young people responsible for preserving the lives of the elderly is the stupidest, most, to me, the word genocide applies to a race, but something that's destroying a whole younger generation, a policy was put in place to ha harm and damage our entire young generations in favor of older people, largely over 85 and 90, who would have died months later anyway. Uh, for that matter, a lot of them would have died of the flu, but the flu hasn't really been recorded as the flu. It's being recorded as COVID. Yeah, so gov course. government, let me tell you, government doesn't regret anything ever. They will never apologize. And if they do, they'll apologize for stuff that another government did 100 years ago. So that it's not really them. Trudeau won't apologize for anything he's done. He'll just apologize for shit that happened 100 years ago that he's so woke to appreciate as being an injustice now. But he's not woke enough. He's, he's so woke he can't see his own injustices right now. And that's classic wokeism, right? The wokeies never see their totalitarian nature now in the present. They just want everybody to repent for the totalitarian or unfair, unjust actions of people who are long since dead that we have no responsibility to represent. One of the questions I asked you earlier about who you would sit down for dinner with, I my answer to that would be Seth Rogen. Have you ever smoked with Seth Rogen, being that he's from Vancouver? No, I, I, you could list off people I've smoked with, and I, there's a lot of sports figures and movie yeah. figures. Anyone that stands um, out? Well, Woody Harrelson smoked with me a lot. He used to visit a lot, too, when he made movies in Vancouver. Um, but I haven't been in Vancouver for that for much of 10 years, so I wouldn't know. Um, I provided weed for Bill Mahar. <laughs> um, I provided uh, stuff to John Cusack, Owen Wilson. Uh, not necessarily cannabis, and I won't tell you what because no, that's don't unfair. Say, don't have to say that shit. I just meant yeah. like smoking. But but I hung out with them, right? Some people yeah. aren't just into pot, and some people needed something different at the time uh, than pot. Um, Woody Harrelson is strictly a pot person. Um, let's see. Well, actually he's probably done tons of other shit, but not with me. Um, <laughs> and there, you know, like I'd have to go through movies guys. I really liked though. Like Sean Paul was great. Cause he was on the cover of cannabis culture. He gave me backstage passes to meet him one time. We smoked weed together. Very friendly, good guy. Um, really accommodating when we needed him to do stuff for us for the magazine. So he gets kudos for that. Cause you know, when a star is much bigger than we are, they're doing you a favor. Uh, when they're the same level as us, it's like promotion for them. And when they're not as big as us, they're grateful. Because, you know, you're always looking to the more famous uh, people to elevate you up to a higher level, right? That's how you're going to get there. You're getting discovered by people who are important. So, you know, that was back in my heyday, which was like 19. 1997 to 2010, I met famous people all the time and, and hung out with them. <clears throat> when I came back, it's funny, I went to prison in the United States in 2010 and came back in 2014. And the world changed incredibly by then. You know, before 2010, I never heard the term whiteness or white privilege or transphobic or any of that shit. And then when I got out, the world was awash in this kind of wokeism that had seized the world, like the Western world, the English-speaking world, Canada, UK, America, by some weird, perverse storm. Oh, and the cancel culture shit's happening all yeah, over the place. Yeah, that, that happened, yeah. For the weirdest shit, too, like stuff people don't even... And here's the thing, cancel culture is 
You'd think, oh, people want an apology. They don't want an apology. When somebody from Me Too accuses somebody of some shit 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, or somebody finds some racist tweet from 20 years ago, or some homophobic or trans, yeah. whatever, they don't want an apology. Nobody wants to come together and make it right. They just want to humiliate the other person. It's all about humiliating your enemies, right? So humiliating your enemies is what cancel culture is all about. It's not about an apology. So people should never apologize, never apologize for any of this shit because an apology won't help you, right? It only change the future. Well, what happens is you simply have to wait for the mob to move on because like, look at Justin Timberlake. He's like groveling like crazy a week ago because he's got a movie coming out. Normally he's groveling because a new documentary called Framing Britney Spears makes Justin look like a bad boyfriend when he was like 18 or 19 because he joked when they broke up. And apparently that traumatized Britney Spears, right? And I'm thinking, fuck it. Some kid when he's 18 or 19, 18 years ago, he's being dragged up by saying he was rude to his ex. And now that ex has a million fans who want Justin to apologize or they're going to like bomb his social media with hateful negative shit. Yeah. So he has to go, I'm sorry I didn't do. I'm thinking, oh, for God's sake, shut up. Right. But he has to do it because he's got a feel-good movie now out on Netflix or some shit where he has to play a nice guy. And he can't be the nice guy if all of Britney's fans are calling him a piece of shit because yeah. he was rude to her, right? So like his, ma- his, his manager said, whatever, say this piece of shit. Your fans won't care in a negative way, right? And sure, guys like me will just Justin Timberlake, but I'm not his target market. Um Although, you know, I actually like Justin Timberlake and play his music fairly, you know, often. Um, and I wouldn't change that because he had to grovelingly apologize. But no apology works. They're still coming at you and they'll want more. They want you to be humiliated. So if that means getting fired or losing a job or losing your place in a newspaper or losing your position on a board of directors, whatever it takes to humiliate you, that's what they want. So I got really one good question left anyways um uh basically what are you up to these days and is there anything you would like to promote or talk about before we wrap this up here i don't sure wanna, i don't want to um, keep you too long jody's cooking. i spent i spent six actually we're starving too so you're right about that um but uh oh and the food's ready okay well so that's good okay here's what's happening i, I like to be in Colombia with my girlfriend or children or family um, but most of the time I'm not. I'm only there three months of the year. We have an apartment. You can get a three-bedroom, two-bathroom, new apartment uh, at the, on the 24th floor for 650 Canadian a month. And that's the only apartment I have. I don't actually have a place. Um, I'll be living with friends in Hamilton when I start uh, working out there in, later this month. I'll be working at my brother, Emery Brothers Cannabis Store uh, starting in May. And I'll probably live in the basement of that shop because I don't need an apartment. Um, or, you know, or somewhere convenient, just easy like that. I own next to nothing. I just have a few boxes of possessions. But this month, I'm going to enjoy spending time with Jody and meeting a few friends here in Vancouver, watching the Raptors on TV and uh, smoking good weed and then uh, getting ready to work for the rest of the year, starting in two or three weeks. And otherwise, that's everything. I'm not promoting anybody or anything. And if someone wants to hire me to promote them, I'm, I'm certainly open to that. But really, I, I just, you know, I, I'm looking forward to starting work at a, on a daily basis. I've been in retail all my life, love meeting people. People will drive hundreds of miles to buy pot from me and hang out and talk. And I'm looking forward to doing that. 
for sure. Thank you for taking the time today. I appreciate it. And uh, it was really good. And uh, I'll edit it you, back to you in the next couple of days and enjoy your dinner. Yeah, thanks. Well, whenever you put it up, that's fine. You don't have to show me. Okay. Is there, well, we're off air on this part. Is there anything you want cut out or just want to? No, anything? no, nope. nothing. No, it was great. It was good. Okay, um, so that, that's why I don't need to see it before you do it. Just send me the finished one and I'll promote yep. it. Okay, perfect. Okay, man. Talk to you later. Thank you. Bye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.